This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's On Books podcast with me, Amit Barua, your host for this episode. Disturbed Afghanistan has always fascinated writers and journalists. Its history has drawn people in. The absence of central control, the terrible civil war within, foreign intervention, and a staging point for the Cold War to defeat the Soviet Union. Afghanistan has seen it all, and you thought it might have ended. After the sudden withdrawal of American troops last year, Washington has left Afghanistan to the Taliban, a group that they were bombing after 9-11. Pakistan is back in focus along with its ally China a country that looks set to influence the course of events in Afghanistan. To discuss these issues raised by their new book, I have with me Anand Krishnan and Stanley Johnny, authors of The Comrades and the Mullahs, China, Afghanistan and the New Asian Geopolitics. Welcome to the On Books podcast, Anand and Stanley. Thank you so much, Amit, for having us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my first question um, is to Anand Krishnan. And uh, I see your report uh, this morning in the Hindu where uh, you report on the meeting of the foreign ministers of China, Pakistan and Afghanistan meeting uh, in a threesome and then a larger regional meeting. So does this fit uh, completely in line with whatever you're saying in the book that China is taking center stage uh, in this new politics of Afghanistan, Pakistan and Central Asia? Well, Amit, I think uh, what really interested me and uh, the both of us actually was that um, at the time of the U.S. withdrawal uh, and the dramatic exit, we actually started discussing the book before the fall of Kabul. And I think one of the things that prompted us to have a conversation about doing a possible book was in end July 2021. Um, And of course, the Ghani government was still in power then. You had a Taliban delegation travel to China and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi hosted them in Tianjin. And that visit really intrigued us uh, in terms of how is it that you are having this relationship and, in fact, the early stages back then of a bond between the Taliban and the Communist Party of China. They're two so different characters. And the fact that they were sort of coming together, I think, really interested us. It should be said, Amit, that we are still very much in the early doors of this new period in Afghanistan. uh, And hence, uh, very, very early stages of this relationship. But what this book does is it kind of charts out the past of China-Afghan relations, uh, China's experience with Taliban 1.0, which I think is uh, very useful for us to get a sense of um, China's own feelings about the Taliban. Uh, and as we put it, it's more of a wary, reluctant embrace rather than a wholehearted one, given that they have their own deep reservations about Taliban's ideology. Uh, and as you know, Amit, in terms of their own internal issues they're having with uh, Muslims in China, uh, in Xinjiang. So there's lots of contradictions in this relationship. Uh, it's going to be a very important relationship. And as a recent diplomacy of China has shown, uh, you mentioned uh, on March 30th and 31, uh, China has really taken the lead in organizing this new grouping of foreign ministers of Afghanistan's neighbors. Uh, and in, now what they've been talking about is pushing China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, trilateral cooperation, 
extending the China-Pakistan economic corridor to Afghanistan. So really, I think they are uh, in a position where they want to take a lead to some degree uh, in this very new phase in Afghan relations. But I think a very important point that we emphasize in the book, Amit, and we should keep in mind, is that China is not going to go all in. It's not going to repeat the mistakes of past superpowers, and it's learning from them. And it very much wants to be a different kind of external power in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think you you do make the point uh, in the book that uh, you know there are voices within the Chinese establishment also which are warning of the dangers from the Taliban. But to the outside world, Anand, the optics are uh, you know very clear that China is playing host uh, to these people. China is engaging them. There are regular visits. So what what kind of message is being sent out by this then? I think the message that we should take from this, uh, Amit, is that the Chinese are really the ultimate pragmatists. I think towards uh, even the last few days of the Ghani government, uh, as we mentioned in the book, they were hosting the Taliban in July 2021. But at the same time, uh, President Xi was also talking to President Ghani. And as one of the experts tells us in the book, a case can be made that perhaps the ideal scenario would have been a power sharing kind of arrangement where even the Taliban would have been kept in check. And I think China's good in the situation where they get to play one power off another to maximize their interests. And I don't think they really would have been thrilled at the prospect of being completely beholden to the Taliban as they are now. But being the pragmatists that they are having close relationship with Pakistan, who, as we all know, have been backers of the Taliban, even when they were out of power, I think they are in a position uh, to work with them, put aside whatever ideological problems and reservations they may have had with the Taliban, and do what they can to protect Chinese interests, uh, even with all the projects in Afghanistan, which we can talk about later, that they were hoping to do for the last 10, 15 years, but really haven't taken off at all. Um, So I think they will be looking at their own economic benefits looking at what they can do to uh, maintain stability in Afghanistan. And we should also add, looking what they can do in terms of uh, China-US rivalry, which is their abiding sort of obsession. Uh, even this week on March 30 and 31, uh, when you had these foreign ministers of neighboring countries come together, you can be sure was it at the Chinese insistence that they criticize the US for bringing Afghanistan to its current problems for the manner of the exit so I think all of these things are different facets of what China will look at as, as they look to craft relationship with the Taliban government. And as we said, Amit, it's still early days, but I think you are beginning to see the contours of what kind of relationship and what kind of priorities China wants. Right. Stanley, to bring you in uh, now, what is your sense of the differences between Taliban 1.0 and Taliban 2.0? Uh, many scholars have argued that, uh, you know, that there are issues in making this distinction. But let's come also to how the rest of the world, uh, you know, has approached the Taliban. In October 1997, the Taliban was, of course, recognized by Pakistan and by the UAE and by the, by the Saudis. In the present case, correct me if I'm wrong, no country has officially recognized the Taliban. But so many are doing uh, business with it, including India. So does formal recognition, in a sense, even matter for the Taliban? Regarding the first point you uh, mentioned, uh, the difference between Taliban 1.0 and 2.0. So again, in the book, we have maintained that, you know, we don't have any evidence to suggest that the Taliban have undergone any 
major ideological or structural or operational change of course there is a uh, you know there is a narrative there is an argument that the new taliban would be different from the taliban of the 1990s uh, but the point is that the taliban have never said that they have changed before they captured kabul the taliban had never said that you know their new government would be different from what they had in the 1990s they had never disowned mullah umar or his policies so the taliban themselves hadn't ideologically or operationally distanced uh, from uh, what their regime was in the 1990s but still there was a carefully constructed argument was there that the taliban was different it could be because you know in 2020 we saw that the united states had held i mean before, before that they had they, they had direct negotiations with the taliban the trump administration had appointed a special envoy so that was a kind of a u turn from the united states which went to afghanistan to defeat al qaeda to uh, topple the taliban regime which back then ronald rumsfeld said, said in 2001 that they will never have negotiations with extremists etc uh, etc et so but then the same the same united states had to held direct negotiations with the taliban by passing the afghan government and then they decided to pull back troops in return for practically nothing the taliban had given assurances that they would severe ties with al qaeda uh, islamic state other terrorist organizations and even reduce combat operations etc so what we saw after the 2020 agreement was signed was that the taliban reduced operations against american military personnel in afghanistan but they didn't reduce any other military operations and it's i think it's contested it's still contested to argue that the taliban had severe ties with al qaeda because uh, you have sirajuddin haqqani uh, whose haqqani network has very deep ties with al qaeda as your interior minister and as soon as the taliban captured kabul the government they came up with you know it is a near total pashtun majority government with no women representation with practically no minority representation and even if you look at taliban's policies which they have taken ever since uh, including the recent decision not to open women's high schools girls high schools or uh, you know the decision to crack down on girls travel or the the, the directive asking government employees you know uh, or enforcing strict dress code including beards on government employees etc etc all this suggests that you know there is no marked difference between these two regimes so so what what you're trying to say is that uh, that the taliban has not changed but does that mean the rest of the world has changed in its approach to the taliban of course the rest of the world has changed it starts with the united states direct agreement with the, with the taliban the united states wouldn't have never done it in the 1990s you know i'm linking it to the first part uh, the second part of my question as to how the world community has approached the taliban previously and now the recognition of those three countries the lack of recognition by major powers and the kind of engagement that we have been seeing uh so yeah the difference is that in the 1990s when the taliban came the taliban was a pariah state yeah as you mentioned only three countries had offered direct recognition to the taliban and the rest of the world were in fact united if you look at the un security un general assembly resolutions or security council resolutions uh, in which india was also a part that there was a united opposition to the taliban and the taliban's uh, policies at that time but now i think yes the rest of the commu- global community uh, you can see the differences starting from the united states or you look at china they, they haven't offered formal recognition but all these countries were ready to engage the taliban this time so this could be out of realism or this could be also out of their calculation that after the 20 year experiment in afghanistan 
in which you had a government, you had an elected government, you had an elected parliament, you had uh, tens of thousands, uh, you have thousands of uh, American troops present in Afghanistan. And after all these experiments, what you had after 20 years is the Taliban returning to power. So it could have influenced the, the foreign policy thinking of the countries in the region that the Taliban are going to stay. They are not going to go anywhere. So you will have to deal business with them. But at the same time, they face a moral dilemma because the Taliban, the Taliban we know, haven't gone through any ideological different any changes. So that I think you can see all these countries are reluctant, but at the same time, they are ready to engage. So it is kind of a pragmatic, reluctant engagement with the Taliban is what we are witnessing now. So it's interesting, both you and Anand use the word pragmatic, uh, you know, in, in, in foreign policy dealings. Uh, I think that's a, that, that's a real point of interest. I'm now going to move on and ask Anand that you point out in the book uh, that uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping has taken a more interventionist approach in the affairs of other countries. So, so where is that likely to go in the, in the months and years ahead? That's a good question, Amit. And I think that the way I see it, it isn't really about Xi Jinping, but maybe one can make the case that it was inevitable that as China's economy grew, as its interest grew, uh, it was going to be more actively involved in non-economic matters, in political security matters abroad to protect its investments. And we've seen that, I think, uh, even in a place like Nepal, where you see China being more involved in terms of how it's speaking with different domestic political parties and has inserted itself uh, as a player in domestic politics as well. Of course, it's something India has been doing uh, for a long time. But it is uh, interesting to see China doing those same things. And I think as far as Afghanistan is concerned, I don't think, uh, as we quote one scholar as saying, they aren't really that comfortable, I think, uh, in inserting themselves there domestically. And to a large extent, I think they've been leaning on their friends in Islamabad. Uh, and Amit, you know more than most of us in terms of that dynamic. Uh, so I think that they have lent quite heavily in terms of uh, on Pakistan, uh, in terms of protecting their interests as far as Afghanistan's domestic politics are concerned. But more broadly, what I think has been a very sort of transformative moment in Chinese foreign policy has been the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and we speak in some detail about that. Um, and of course, it was launched in 2013, a year into Xi Jinping taking over as General Secretary of the Communist Party of China. And just by virtue of its location, Afghanistan is a place that they look at as an important point along the Belt and Road uh, in terms of the Silk Road economic belt. Uh, that is something that runs west from China's western frontiers. Uh, and the China-Pakistan economic corridor is a very important element of the Silk Road economic belt. And uh, China has been saying, even pre-Taliban, there were talks. Uh, I remember attending a talks between the three foreign ministers in Beijing, uh, probably in 2017, where they had first sort of spoken of extending the China-Pakistan economic corridor to Afghanistan. And that kind of never really happened with the unrest and then finally with the fall of the previous government. Uh, and so I found it interesting that when Wang Yi went to Pakistan and then made the surprise stop in Kabul the last week of March before arriving in India, one of the things that he mentioned was again reviving this, this potential of extending CPEC and making it 
Afghanistan a part of it. And that was something that they mentioned again on March 31st uh, when they met in China and they had this, you know, uh, what you mentioned earlier, I meant the three-way meeting between the foreign ministers of the three countries. Um, so I think this, the Belt and Road has really changed the way China looks at itself abroad. And perhaps it was a natural sort of consequence of their growing economic weight uh, and the fact that they have all these interests outside of China that they now want to protect. And one way of protecting that, obviously, is being involved in the political machinations of overseas countries in a way that they weren't interested in doing so previously. Right. Uh, Stanley, uh, you know, one other player in this uh, regional meetings that we've, uh, that Anand has been speaking of uh, is Russia. And, you know, Russia burnt its boats uh, in Afghanistan or the Soviet Union burnt its boats in Afghanistan. But they are a very active regional player along with the Chinese and indeed uh, with the Pakistanis because I see that uh, in China, uh, the Pakistani foreign minister had a separate meeting with Sergei Lavrov before he arrived in India. So what is your sense of uh, the role that the Russians will play? Uh, what are their perceived interests? Uh, you know, are they ready to play second fiddle to the Chinese in a sense? Yeah, I don't think that they are ready to play second fiddle to the Chinese because the Russians, uh, or if you look at the crisis in Europe, the whole idea, uh, the, the whole, you know, the crux of the crisis in Europe is that the Russians are not ready to say, play second fiddle to the West. No, I'm saying to the Chinese in Afghanistan specifically. Yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah, in the case of Afghanistan, or rather in the larger Asian context, I think uh, the Russians, yeah, the Russians had their own concerns in Afghanistan because you know they don't want uh, Afghanistan and unstable Afghanistan uh, to export issues to its periphery, to the Central Asian republics, or even to the Russian mainland. They don't want Taliban, which in the like in the 1990s, the Taliban had very uh, strong ties with uh, uh, extremist organizations that were operating in Uzbekistan and other Central Asian republics. The Russians don't want that to happen. Like the Chinese also don't want uh, Taliban to have ties with the ETAM or other uh, extremist organizations. So the Russians, like the Chinese, had reached out to the Taliban well before the Taliban had taken over. But at the same time, I think, yeah, there is, uh, as we discussed earlier, on the one side, there is this willingness of these countries even if you look at the Iranians who almost went to war with the Taliban in the 1990s. So they all are ready to engage the Taliban right now. Or they are ready to take a, a you know a wait and watch approach. If you look at uh, the Chinese response as well as the Russian response, both had reached out to the Taliban. Both had hosted Taliban delegation. Um, you know, Taliban delegation in 2018, there was a Taliban dele delegation in Moscow. Uh, both had reached out to the Taliban, hosted the Taliban delegation. But at the same time, if you look at the Russians, the, Rus the Russians are a bit slow in building ties with the Taliban regime compared to the Chinese. So which also, I think, underscores the idea is that the Russians had deeper concerns on two things. One is, of course, the Taliban's ties with the former, you know, Uzbekistan-based extremist organization or its concerns about uh, Taliban-controlled Afghanistan destabilization of a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, which could, you know, export some kind of instability into the Central Asian region. That is one. And secondly, the Russians, which they have, uh, you know, expressed many times in public, their main concern is uh, uh, that uh, the strengthening of uh, this uh, ISIS Khorasan uh, in eastern Afghanistan. 
you know, I think, yeah, we can't say that the Russians would play second fiddle to the Chinese in Afghanistan. There are nuances in their approaches to Afghanistan. So, but at the same time, the Russians also, uh, you know, I think realize that the Taliban are a reality. So they have to wait and see whether the Taliban would be able to stabilize Afghanistan. If they don't, in the 1990s, they didn't. And what the Russians did, we know that Russians, the Indians, the Iranians and the Central Asian republics came together. Uh, in supporting the anti-Taliban forces in Afghanistan. Uh, so, but at this point of time, I think everybody has taken a wait and watch approach. Right. Uh, one thing uh, which you were both, uh, you know, referred to in the book is also the Chinese government's own approach to its Muslim minority. And, uh, you know, how this fits in with Beijing's, um, uh, you know, approach towards the Taliban. So, Anant, you've been in China, you know, covering this issue for a while. What is your sense of how how, how does China balance this uh, or does it need to balance uh, the, this approach at all? I think that uh, when you saw the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi attend the OIC conference in Islamabad and speak about uh, Palestine and he spoke about Kashmir. Uh, and of course, that brought a very sharp reaction from India right before he landed. Uh, but not a word was mentioned by anybody at the OIC on, on Xinjiang. Uh, and in Xinjiang in 2016, China began building a network of camps. Uh, the China calls them vocational training centers. Previously, Beijing denied the existence of the camps, but when lots of images came out, they said these were for vocational training. The testimonies of people who have been in these camps say that it was really something that was not voluntary. People were forced to go there. They spent months, if not years, there, essentially in prison-like conditions. Uh, these were internment camps, and you had hundreds of thousands of Uyghur ethnic minority Muslims in China and several other minority Muslims in China from other groups as well uh, who were sent to these camps. You never had a squeak uh, from any of these countries um, who usually speak out on the rights of Muslims abroad. So I think that it is a glaring contradiction, uh, but one that perhaps hasn't yet become a challenge for China because many of the Islamic countries whose governments have close economic relations with China haven't really spoken up about it. I think one thing that people in Beijing, at least experts, would be mindful of is if in the future, if it becomes an issue among publics in countries abroad where China has uh, economic relations, would that become something for China to deal with? So far, that hasn't been the case, whether in Pakistan You've had isolated groups, isolated voices speaking up about Uyghurs or even in Turkey. Uh, but for the broader Islamic world, will it or will it not become an issue uh, that China will have to deal with, at least among the level of the publics, if not the level of governments? I think they've been able to get governments on side because of the fact that many of these governments need China, whether it's for imports and exports or for other strategic or economic reasons. It hasn't become an issue yet, Amit. But we just wanted to flag it as a potential point of obvious glaring contradiction between what China is saying in being a very different kind of power uh, in the Muslim world and constantly highlighting America's, uh, you know, uh, violations of Muslim rights in the Muslim world and the contradiction of what China is doing at home. So this uh, OIC silence uh, that uh, you referred to, Wang Sing Yang, and the fact that uh, Wang Yi was just there, so, so does this mean that, uh, you know, China is uh, uh, now such a big power that other countries just don't want to offend it in any way? 
It's absolutely a question of uh, power. And I think that China has made clear that people who do speak out about its internal affairs do face strong repercussions. On the one hand, even though China is strongly against the notion of sanctions, they've spoken out about sanctions, uh, both in the context of Afghanistan and the Taliban, and also more recently now in the context of Russia and Ukraine. While China is against sanctions, they have imposed unofficial sanctions on countries that do speak out about its internal affairs. Uh, examples range from Mongolia, who hosts the Dalai Lama, to Australia, who, sp- who spoke out about Hong Kong. Uh, so China has made it very clear that if you do cross them on internal affairs, they will take hard measures. Right. Stanley, uh, you know, looking back, uh, you know, to the to the overall situation uh, in Afghanistan about which you've written a lot in the book. One of the things, as you both pointed point out in the podcast as well, is that everybody's waiting and watching. Uh, what is your sense of how the Taliban will be able to manage uh, affairs in in Afghanistan? Because as you rightly point out, they never said uh, uh, that they were going to change. Uh, it's the rest of the world that has been hoping for some change on their part. So now with multiple crises, including, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, the assertion by the IS uh, in Afghanistan, what is your sense of how they're going to be able to control uh, matters in Afghanistan? There are two things. If you look at the the map of Afghanistan today, and if you compare it with the Taliban's control map of Afghanistan in the 1990s, the Taliban are certainly in a much stronger position now. Uh, you know, the entire northern provinces were revolting against the Taliban in the 1990s. Now, maybe except some mountainous territory in the Panjshir Valley, the Taliban had at least, we can say that, taken control of the whole of Afghanistan. So the Taliban appear to be much stronger now. And uh, again, uh, if you look at the 1990s, as we discussed earlier, 1990s, the Taliban, uh, you know, yeah, besides the recognition of three countries, the Taliban had uh, many countries in the region opposed to the Taliban, and they were supporting the Taliban's rivals. So now, on the contrary, what we see is that, okay, the Taliban haven't got recognition from any other country, but at the same time, all regional countries are ready to engage the Taliban. At least they haven't turned hostile yet. So, uh, if you look at these two, the internal uh, control uh, scenario as well as the external relationship scenario, the Taliban appear to be stronger today. But at the same time, as you pointed out, uh, Afghanistan is going through a very bad phase. Economic crisis is uh, it's worse than um, all of us expected. The government's revenue dried up. Children are dying because there is lack of food, uh, you know, medicines. Even government employees are not paid. So the country is going through a very, very bad phase, first of all. And secondly, again, if we look at 2001 to 2003 scenario, or 2005, until 2005, uh, when the Islamic Republic was established, when the Taliban were on the run, uh, there was a general perception that Afghanistan had finally made peace with itself. And you had the parliamentary election, you had the presidential election, you had a new system, you had the support of the Americans. And there was relative peace, at least in Afghan cities. So there was this idea that, uh, you know, Afghanistan was finally, after years of civil war, the Soviets went in 1979, uh, did all kind of brutalities in Afghanistan. You had the Mujahideen government, and then you had, uh, um, you know, uh, the Taliban government. So finally, Afghanistan had made peace with itself. This was the idea back in the early 2000s. But 15 years down the line, now you have the Taliban back in Afghanistan, in Kabul. 
So this is what Afghanistan's history also telling us. So it's been what? It's been uh, seven months, eight months since the Taliban came to power. Taliban appeared to be stronger this time, but at the same time there are fault lines. The Taliban faced two uh, armed opposition, though they are weak. One is of course this uh, Panjshir-based uh, guerrillas, who some of them are in uh, Tajikistan, some of our, some of them are in the Panjshir mountains. They lost momentum completely, but you never know whether they would be able to turn around the rebellion against the Taliban if the Taliban continue to face these problems. And then secondly, uh, it is the Islamic State Khorasan, which have carried out uh, attacks across Afghanistan ever since the Taliban came to power. So Taliban faced these challenges as well. So I think it's very hard to make predictions at this stage. At this stage. We can't say whether the Taliban would be able to stabilize Afghanistan or we can't say whether the Taliban uh, would face bigger uh, existential challenges from its enemies uh, in the future. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Stanley Johnny and Anand Krishnan, uh, for this fascinating conversation and the, uh, the interesting book that you all have written on what is clearly one of the most burning issues and spots uh, in global politics. Thank you so much for talking to the Hindus uh, on Books podcast. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Amit. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindus podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 S O C M E D 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 